Blog Talk Radio. in between. Live from Los Angeles, California, welcome to the Paranormal and the Sacred Radio Show with your host, Shaw McCain. Hey everybody, I'm your featured host, Shaw McCain on Blog Talk Radio. I'd like to welcome listeners to the Paranormal and Sacred Radio Show. My show was created to provide an open-minded platform that welcomes the gifted and extraordinary thinkers from every walk of life and circumstance. Please follow me on Facebook for upcoming events and special speakers from around the world. The call-in number tonight is 619-924-9744, and the Paranormal is Sacred airs every Friday night, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. I'd like to thank Tucker Smallwood for his intro to the show, and we really appreciate him very much. And during this show, I can take questions in order in chat, and you may call in with your questions and talk with our guest tonight. Any buzzkiller in chat or on the phone will be kicked out, and I have a copy of your phone information, so I'll call you back and bug you. So please play nice and be polite. I have an announcement to make uh, before we welcome our guest on tonight. Uh, May 31st, now that's Saturday in Culver City, Zero International presents Steve Allen, Eyewitness and Research of the Stephenville Lights. And he's going to be speaking, and that's from 7 p.m. to 10.30 p.m., at the Veterans Memorial Complex, 4117 Overland Avenue, Culver City, California, 90230. And that's next to Sony Studio. And uh, you can also go to the website to find out more information. It's www.cerointernational.com. Fifteen bucks at the door. They have plenty of raffles, uh, three majorly beautiful baskets uh, for raffle tickets. And I'll be at the raffle table, I think. Uh, helping and uh, it's always a, a wonderful show and we do uh, go out for coffee after and sometimes we're out there talking at 3 in the morning so come on folks, come on over and enjoy the show tomorrow and uh, this week we have a very, very special guest and it's Andrea Perone whose wife uh, was, was uh, documented somewhat in the movie The Conjuring and uh, she's an author and has uh, written in a an amazing trilogy on the House of Darkness, House of Light, of her experiences in uh, this house, and we should tell you more about. And um, the movie The Conjuring depicted 18th century farmhouse in Rhode Island where Roger and Carolyn Perrone, her, her parents, and their five daughters, uh, and she's the eldest daughter, were allegedly terrified and possessed by spirits or had problems or whatever. I'm sure the movie was exaggerating some points, but nevertheless, Andrea Perrone is the oldest, of the five prone girls. And um, Andrea is the author of the trilogy House of Darkness, House of Light. In these books, Chronicle of Life, she shared with the dead and the living alike in a colonial era farmhouse in Harrisville, Rhode Island. Born in 1958, at the age of 12, her parents purchased the Arnold Estate, beginning an incredible journey beyond the realm of reality as most perceive it to be. A collective memoir that details the encounters experienced by each and every member of her family. 
1987, Near Mortals spent a decade exploring the vast expanse of possibilities that exist beyond the five senses, employing the six for clarity. And Andrea received an interdisciplinary degree in English and in philosophy from Chatham College in 1980, and two weeks later left the farm with her family, moving to Georgia in June of that year. She has since owned two businesses and spent nearly a decade as a counselor before abandoning her career to tell the story, to write the book she believes she was destined to write. She lives quietly with her mother in rural Georgia, but she continues her work, and as a final manuscript, is poised for publication in October uh, 2013, so this has already been going on. And uh, she's a human rights advocate and an animal rights activist and an outspoken member of the world community, which she insists that needs to be saved. People need to be saved for themselves. That's true, Andrea. And she also has a YouTube channel and a website uh, for more information. And at this point in our program, I can see that Ms. Perone is here on the line. So let me get her on. Is this you, Andrea? Hi, good evening. Welcome to the Paranormal and Sacred. We're on live. I know. I'm in the chat box sending love and hugs yeah, and you are to everybody. Okay. <laughs> yes, uh, everybody can see you in there. That's great. And uh, we really want to welcome you. You know, um, I did. I can't remember why I just started getting interested in this whole story. Uh, I had heard something briefly about it, and then uh, everybody was talking about it, and then it was a case by Lorraine, and so we were following it like that. And then I saw the movie, and then I've been reading all all of uh, your writing, which is, is really awesome. You're a great writer, by the way. Thank you, sweetheart. I appreciate that. My whole heart and soul is on every page of these books, and Volume 3 is in the works. Yay. That's <laughs> oh, awesome. You know, it's hard to, uh, uh, you know, experience all these things and then tell the truth about it. I'm sure that it was hard at first. No, it wasn't really. I thought no? that uh, I didn't really have an expectation of it being, you know, hard or, uh, well, you know, keep in mind that I had several years before I actually got out into the public. Um, because this, I have been writing, editing, and publishing these three books now for six years. So I had, it was March of 2010 when I first finished the manuscript as a whole. And then, of course, it was time to shop it, you know, and, and see if there was anybody out there that was interested in reading our story. Uh, and I got uh, jumped on by a number of different publishers that wanted it. But what they wanted were the rights to the story. They wanted to virtually own the story, take my book, and rework it however they pleased. Well, how far do you think that bird flew? <laughs> you know, Not very like, far. No, thank you, but no thank you. Um, one publisher, one of the largest publishers in the world, the largest in the genre, didn't even have the manuscript 24 hours before they contacted my agent and said, uh, well, we've you know, really got something here. Well, they didn't even have time to read it in that amount of time. All they could have done was feather through it and realize that this was something uh, you know, quite extraordinary in terms of uh, story and background and everything else. 
And uh, James Wan didn't even know what to make of it um, when he was first offered the uh, director's position for the film because he's been a follower of Ed and Lorraine Warren's for, um, since he was a kid and has done an inordinate amount of research in terms of the paranormal. And he had never heard of this story. So he was like, you know, what's up with this? Is something this extraordinary has never been out? I have never heard about this. It's not in any of Ed and Lorraine's books. It's not out there. And it was explained to him that it was not out there for three decades with purpose and reason, that our family... Uh, that my mother had told Lorraine Warren that she didn't want it disseminated, she didn't want it discussed, and that she was not willing to um, to put a, a book or a movie together on this story because Lorraine Warren approached my mom right after we moved out of the farm in 1980, and uh, was uh, and you know made her a very lucrative offer, but uh, the the evening of the day that she called. My mother had uh, my mother was virtually attacked in the cellar of our new home down in Georgia, and uh, she took that uh, for exactly what it was, which was a warning. And when Mrs. Warren called back the following day with the ghostwriter that she had, which I love that I love that phrase. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and my mother said, you know, my mother spoke with this gentleman, and she said, "You have no idea what you're dealing with here, and you need to excuse yourself and run in the opposite direction away from this story. Do not be involved in any way with this, and tell Mrs. Warren that no, we are not interested in sharing our story with the world." And that was in 1980. And in 2008, I moved down here. So 30 years later, uh, moved down from Rhode Island. I was living in Rhode Island uh, and moved in with my mom and my sister, Christine, and spent um, all this time writing, producing, and you know, putting this story out into the world. I walked away from a job I loved to do it but I knew that it was time to tell this story. It was time. It really is for uh, many, many different reasons. And uh, for for our guests who haven't heard the stories and our listeners, um, could you please uh, tell us where you were born and where you were raised and uh, then when you moved into the farmhouse? Sure. Um, I was born in 1958, just outside of Providence, Rhode Island, uh, I'm the eldest of five girls. We lived for a few years in Willimantic, Connecticut. My, all the rest of my four sisters were born in Connecticut. I was the only actual native Rhode Islander in the family, uh, other than my father, of course. And uh, it was, um, I think, I was five or six when we moved to Cumberland, Rhode Island. And we stayed there for six years, but there were some incidents and some issues that were occurring in our neighborhood that had formerly been uh, quite idyllic, uh, really a a nice neighborhood to grow up in. Uh, And Cumberland is a lovely town, but it was like overnight things changed. There was almost a a shift uh, in dynamics, uh, like right right around 1968-69. And and part of it, I think, had to do with just the overall shift in our society and our culture as a whole, 
uh, the 60s were very turbulent and there was, uh, you know, a great deal of unrest in general. But it was it was more than that. It was just a series of, uh, like, you know, Lemony Snicket, a series of uh, un- unfortunate incidents and circumstances mm-hmm. which occurred that uh, caused my mother to be concerned enough that she told my father she wanted to sell the house that they'd only been in for about five years and uh, and get a place in the country, which is why the uh, first chapter is titled A Place in the Country. And then, of course, you know that theme carries out throughout the entire trilogy. You're going to love Volume 3, by the way. It is the best of the three books. But make sure I that you keep a hanky handy because it's going to rip your heart out. It was hard beyond measure to leave the farm. Some of us still every day think, you know, that shouldn't have happened, that something's wrong. There's been a tear in the universe. We were never supposed to leave the farm. And then the other half of our family is like, phew, finally that's, I mean, it really fractured our family um, to to sell the farm and and to leave it behind. Uh, my sister Nancy wouldn't leave. She went and made a deal with the new homeowners so that she could stay on uh, indefinitely as the caretaker of the property while they restored it. Um, so that was the first fracture which occurred, and that's in Volume 3 as well, uh, about Nancy making a life of her own and making decisions of her own at a very tender age. She was only 19 years old, and she stayed behind while all the rest of us moved to Georgia together. And then my parents um, got a divorce, and uh, we all just kind of flew the coop. It was it was a very difficult time in all of our lives. It was uh, really uh, an enormous transition in terms of culture shock, even though we had been to Georgia a number of times as a family, because, of course, my mother's entire side of the family lived down here. So we would travel back and forth every summer or every other summer. We'd make an extended trip to Georgia. So it's not like it was completely unfamiliar territory. But, you know, moving into the mountains of North Georgia uh, was uh, a shock to the system, which it will be referred to in several places in Volume 3. But let me backtrack a little bit and, you know, just bring people up to date in terms of um, when we moved, my mother found the house in June of 1970. Um, quite by accident, which we know there is no such thing. And from that point, she, from the point that she saw the ad in the paper and called the realtor, the next morning she went and looked at the farm and she knew that there was no question about it that, you know, come hell or high water, whatever mountain had to be moved, this was the place that she wanted, that was it. And it took about five months to get the, everything done, everything put in place uh, to move into the farm. And then, of course, we closed in December of 1970 on the property, but didn't move in until January 11th of 1971 because my mother refused to move her family at Christmas, which made perfect sense. They mm-hmm. didn't then. We were anxious to move, and so you know we had to have one more Christmas in Cumberland, but at least we knew what was coming. We didn't know what was coming at all. We had no idea that we were going to move into a house where we were going to practically freeze to death, either by natural or supernatural origin. 
um, and sometimes both, and we didn't know that we were moving into a portal that was cleverly disguised as a farmhouse. And yes. so the antics and shenanigans began. Uh, as soon as we moved in, I mean, as soon as we unpacked the truck, the first box that went into my hands, I walked into the parlor and then took a hard right through the dining room and saw a man standing in the corner of the dining room that appeared to be rather oddly dressed. Uh, and he seemed very pleasant, and I walked past him and I said, good morning, and he didn't respond to me. So I just kept going and said, Mom, who's that man with Mr. Kenyon in the dining room? And she said, there's nobody with Mr. Kenyon in the dining room. And I said, well, okay, I guess, you know, it, I'm sure I thought, well, she just didn't see him. Um, and then my sister Christine came in and asked her the same question, and then Cindy came in, and then Nancy came in and said, you know that man in the dining room, he just disappeared. Well, you know, it was chaos in the house. There was a caravan. We had you know, family and friends and a huge moving truck, and Mr. Kenyon was in the dining room packing up the last of his belongings out of the corner cabinet, the hutch for the china. Mm-hmm. And so he was busy, everybody was busy, there was lots of chaos, and it was easy enough to slough it off as uh, whatever. Just a visitor. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we found out in relative short order that it was not a mistake that he was one of the residents of the house and that we were moving it thankfully into a very big space a lot of a generous house because we had to share it with a lot of souls well cuz there's uh seven of you um how did you guys pick your bedrooms or where you're going to be in the house it was, how was as that if, i remember when i wrote about that in the yes. book it was if we knew where we belonged it was the strangest thing. Um, I took the room directly over the parlor. The instant that I walked up into it and saw this room, I decided that I just wanted to be in it for the rest of my life. It's just It was that inviting to me. It was that familiar to me. Um, Nancy and Christine paired up. Then Cindy and April paired up. The rooms were huge, just vacuous. I mean, not what people are used to in ordinary homes now. They were enormous, and the ceilings were extremely low, and I was very tall. So it it felt like um, I got a little bit of that, you know, that kind of weightiness above your head when you're in an old, old house, and you feel mm-hmm. all you have to do is just put your hand over your head and you're touching the ceiling. But there was also a coziness about it that I really loved. And the thing that was interesting was the first time that my mom and dad took us to see the farm, the five of us, it was bizarre because it was as if every one of us in the family knew that house, knew our way around the property. It was so magical, so beautiful. I had never seen anything like it in my life. I just wanted, I never wanted to leave. I just wanted to stay there, and we all felt that way. Um, In fact, that was one of my favorite chapters to write in the first volume. And as you know, I begin the first volume with us living in Cumberland uh, about a year before we actually moved to the farm because the events that occurred in Cumberland were pivotal to catapulting us into that other living situation and arrangement. Everything happened exactly the way that it needed to 
in order for my mother to become disgruntled enough and disillusioned enough with the situation that we were having in Cumberland to start to think about looking around for another situation for us. And one of the most important things that happened prior to us moving, and I think one of the most telling things, is that uh, my father brought a puppy home for us, and my mother whisked her up off the floor. She was an African Basenji, very unusual Mm -hmm. dog. They yodel, they don't bark and they have pointy ears and curly tails, and they're absolutely magnificent animals. Um, and she just you know, just swept her up off the floor and held her in her arms and said, this is a very special dog. She deserves a very special name. She closed her eyes. She kind of tilted her head back to the sky, and when she looked back down, she said Bathsheba. Now, wow. you know, first of all, my mother's not a biblical scholar, And where she came up with that name out of the thousands and thousands of names that she could have chosen. And, of course, none of us were familiar with the story of Bathsheba or the name of Bathsheba. It was a first to our ears. So we just abbreviated it and called her Sheba. But, um, you know, I'll tell you the thing that was the most difficult in the writing of the first book was telling the story of Bathsheba the dog. Uh, That was really tough. It was really tough. And there are things that, you know, there are some things that are very interesting about the film, not to get off topic here with you, but there are some things that are very interesting about the film. In the film, it opens with our family dog being inexplicably killed in the yard. Um, That actually happened, and I didn't put it in the book. Because after the ordeal with our lovely Bathsheba in Cumberland, I could not bear to tell the story of Schultz, our other dog, and what happened to him at the farm as soon as we moved in. So the producers didn't know, and they, you know, they had devoured the book, um, the first volume, when they were when they started shooting the film, and it wasn't in there, and. There are so many things in the film. Yes. And there are so many things in the film that, I mean, there isn't a single scene that has been taken directly from any of the three volumes. And I gave them anything that they wanted. I gave them virtually anything that they wanted for. They had way more information than they could ever have worked with in terms of putting the film together. Uh, But they didn't duplicate a single scene of the book. What they did was they cherry-picked information that I gave them, information that Mrs. Warren gave them from her case files, and then they created a third story. So in broad sweeping strokes, it tells our tale uh, in terms of the big picture, as it were. You know, here's an extremely haunted family. It's in the minutiae that it kind of loses its way. For instance, uh, it sets our family up as the godless heathens and the Warrens as the devout Catholics, and so they were good, we were maybe not so good. Well, we were all born and raised Catholic. We were all baptized into the church. We were all, you know, I mean, our background was Catholic, Catholic, Catholic. And the church turned its back on us. It was not the other way around. So... And there was no exorcism in the house. Nobody was possessed in the house. Although, you know, even my father will debate that and say, you know, for during the seance that went so terribly wrong, something came into your mother. And I was like, yes, that's true. Something came into my mother, but it left. Now, whatever it was, it did its dirty work and it left. 
and in relative short order, and I know because I was there and I saw it. And I perceive what happened to her to be much more so an attack than it was. Uh, she was used as a conduit. She was used as um, the person to get the message through. And whatever it was that attacked her had all the power it could possibly have ever needed to end her life right there on the spot. And what happened to her, it appeared as though that's what had happened, was that my mother had been killed. But it wasn't that at all. What it was trying to do was make its presence known to the Warrens, to the medium, to the priest, and to everybody else that was present in that house that night. It was almost a show of force. And it used my mother to speak to everyone else. You know, your mother uh, appears to be frail to me, yet... Um, I don't know. She's the strongest person I know. She is so... Yes, well, I was just going to say, she's like tough as... Like a, one of those iron angels that are as tough as nails. But they're... they're uh, you know, they defer to others. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she's 95 pounds well, soaking wet, that's but it. her she's physical little... frame has nothing to do. She is a spiritual warrior, and so are her yeah. daughters. Yes, that's what I was just thinking. A mother of uh, five daughters, you know, my, I have, I'm the eldest of five daughters. Oh, I didn't know that. I know, it's just really strange, and um, so I really had a affinity with you because I, I know what it's like to be the eldest. So you you kind of feel things first, you know, and I think that's why yeah. you're the one chronicling this whole thing. And you probably even had more of an understanding of what was coming down earlier than your sisters. If, if, yes, I did. And I'll tell you the yeah. thing that was most wonderful for me, um, my sister Cindy doesn't like it when I say that <laughs> the decade that we spent at the farm was the best decade of my life. She's like, well, you only have to speak for yourself when you say that because it was the worst decade of my life. And, you know, I understand that. I know that it was really, really tough on Cindy. Um, she probably had, <clears throat> well, in fact, I know that Cindy had many more um, encounters and visitations than my mother did it's just that the ones that my mother had were very extreme and sometimes violent so it was uh that was in in terms of the well, now where does there. cindy fall in with the five sisters she's number four cindy's she's number, number four, four. okay mm-hmm. and um, she lives two miles down the road which is great because we get to see her very regularly and we talk okay. on the phone every day we're you know still thick as thieves the five of us even though I occasionally mix it up with my sister April, who drives me up a tree. But, you know, other than that, <laughs> we get along well, what pretty happened, well. What happened, to, what happened to Nancy? Did she, Nancy did she lived stay down, down at the in, farm? No, Nancy um, stayed at the farm for a while, a number of months after uh, we left. And then uh, some things took a, a very bad turn for her. Um, and I will leave it to the readers to to discern that in Volume 3. Uh, as soon as it comes out, anybody that's followed the first two books, jump on this one because it will explain a lot of things and answer a lot of questions uh, that you probably have lingering from the first two books. It was really written as a single manuscript, it, but it was 1,500 pages long. It was just too big to publish as a single book. So my publisher that I originally decided on and who I will just stay with forever, uh, Author House. They're fabulous people, absolutely wonderful. 
uh, and I'm completely in control. I own the rights to the whole story. I'm completely in control of it, uh, the layout of every single page. In fact, I contacted them yesterday and said, uh, on page such and such, I need you to pull that quotation out of there, and I want you to put this quotation in. I emailed them the, uh, the last words from Maya Angelou. Uh, and because mm. it was it was so poignant, and uh, of course I, yeah, and I've got the uh, and it's a tribute uh, to her and you her need her love tweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because she's been an important influence in my life, and um, I'm very good friends with a member of her family. I never had the opportunity to meet her in person before she passed, but I feel like um, I feel like I know her through my friend Pat. Uh, who and she was godparent to my, Pat's children, so you know it was there was this closeness, and I had read all of her books and and all of that. So I, I yanked out a quotation and put her last message to the world in there, uh, in a very pertinent uh, place. So I think oh, that's awesome. uh, paying homage to a great woman. But yes, I'll tell and God rest her soul. She's amazing and. We're going to miss her, and uh, I did the same thing. I've read a, a lot of her, I think at least five of her books and mm-hmm. essays and started watching her on, a, I think it was a PBS show when I was 15. That's how far back it goes when I started yeah. listening to her works. Amazing yeah, woman. An incredible woman, incredible woman. And what she accomplished in her life coming from uh, very humble means and a very troubled background. God bless her. God bless her. I mean, to... Go six years of your life and never utter a word because the man who raped you, you told on, and somebody went out and killed him. She blamed herself. Bless her heart. Yeah, she blamed the, herself for yeah, his that's death. Yeah, that's chronicled in her book, uh, I Know Why the Cage I know how the cage, yeah, why and, the cage Birds Sing. Yeah, and that's uh, just beautiful. Yeah, and uh, the is. movie's made about this. Anyway... I think she just led us all, really, and women in particular. I think that mm-hmm. she meant so much to us. You know, she's yes. telling all these truths, and secretly, these things were happening to everybody. It didn't. Some of it didn't end up like what happened to her, but it, it was happening a lot, and probably still happening. For all we know. Yes. But we know it yep. is. We don't know the numbers, but now they're saying, you know, four and eight, or something like that, at least half or more. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised at all, not even a so little anyway, bit. So anyway, let's get back to the story because your mother chronicled uh, so many negative things around the property, around that town, in that house. And could you tell our listeners some of the things, that, what were her findings and some of the things she found out? Well, she did a lot of uh, research around uh, at that time and compiled a, an entire notebook of information in terms of the historical record and who she could historically attach to the house and and that type of thing and different stories. And she also became very friendly with a very uh, old man that lived as the crow flies maybe about a mile or so away from us. Uh, Mr. McEachern was, uh, actually his name was Mr. McCutchern, but I, I couldn't reach anybody in his family to use his real name, so... I went with uh, a little bit of change in it. Uh, he was in his, God, he had to be in his 80s when we moved there in 1971. And he knew Bathsheba Sherman personally. When he was a child, she was his neighbor. 
at the Sherman Farm. And so he knew some of her history in terms of how she treated the farmhands. Uh, she had a, a reputation as being an absolutely brutal woman. And that's unfortunate. That's very unfortunate. But I don't think, and he's also the one that, you know, filled my mother in on all the gossip and all the details of the background of her story and what she had lived her whole life long being accused of, tacitly accused of by the locals, which was of being a witch, because when she was a younger woman, uh, much younger, in her probably her late teens, she was born in 1812, um, she, a baby died in her care. And what happened beyond that, nobody knows exactly how that infant died, but when the body was uh, examined, it was found that a needle had been impaled at the base of its skull, and the cause of death was listed as convulsions. So, uh, you know, really bringing that full circle, he's the one that filled my mother in on so many of the details of what he knew of Bathsheba Sherman. But I don't think that she was actually a practicing witch. There's nothing anywhere ever that was found that would produce any kind of evidence that she was doing anything like that. And she, there was an inquest about the death of the baby, and the judge dismissed the um, this dismissed the inquest and said that you know there was no evidence that she had done anything wrong and maybe this was just somehow some way a tragic accident but she never ever lived down the reputation of being a murderess and you know committing infanticide uh and sad to say she had four children of her own and uh three of the four of them died before the age of 4 and only one survived her so she had a, a miserable life in many respects, a miserable life. So, you know, I, before I, I leap to judgment about Bathsheba, I tried very hard, and I'm sure if you've read both the books so far, you know that my treatment of her in terms of being an individual is very even-handed and even kind because I wouldn't, I don't know if I could have gotten through the life that she lived Yes, you're showing great uh, kindness and empathy towards her when when she seems like she's actually tortured in real life. Mm-hmm, yeah, and suffered tremendous loss, tremendous loss. So, yeah, I, um, I don't, uh, I do not judge her. She had her time in front of a judge, and she, it was uh, case closed, and it was dismissed. So, if that's, how it went, you know, and there are a lot of people that say, yeah, well, you know, Lizzie Borden got off the hook, too, and so on and so forth. <laughs> and well, and she did. we don't know for sure yeah, I she mean, did it or not. No, we have no idea if she did it or not. We don't I know. <laughs> well, see, it seems she's so creepy, and so is everybody else in that house, that it probably did happen, but, you know, yeah. we don't really know for sure. Now, that was a pretty creeped-out family. You know, uh, Ken DaCosta from Rise Up Paranormal in Rhode Island uh, yes. has done some in, amazing research and has written a fabulous piece about her. It's on his website, so anybody that's interested in that should uh, check out Ken DaCosta's uh, Rise Up Paranormal website. 
he's got uh, a whole piece on there about uh, Lizzie Borden took an axe. But, um, you know, that I know, getting off subject here. But that was fun to talk about for a minute. Um, so anyway, yeah. we, were moved, we moved into the house, and uh, we had our first sighting uh, of an apparition. The interesting thing about that, Sean, is my father walked in. My mother was very busy in the kitchen. She never actually came back into the dining room for quite some time after we started unloading the truck. So she never saw him. But my father was actually in the dining room when he was there, when the apparition was there. And we could see him, but my father didn't. So that's indicative of the sensitivities and the sensibilities of children. And that's what makes children in haunted situations much more susceptible and vulnerable than their adult counterparts. Because they haven't yet figured out that they're supposed to be mortal when they're actually essentially immortal. I think that children are are born with their immortal imprint still very much a part of them and that it's not until it gets conditioned out by the adults around them that they start to perceive the world more three-dimensionally than we do as children. And my sister, April, when we moved in, she had an in relative short order, developed a lovely relationship with a little boy who he told her his name was Oliver Richardson. And he lived, lived, dwelled in the chimney closet upstairs between the second and the third bedroom. So when she would go in there to play with her toys, he would come sneaking out of the eaves and would join her. And we had like a mini Legoland, you know, that type of thing. We had mm-hmm. uh, the little people. Remember the little people that were yes, Fisher-Price and uh, then the little ghosts. Little and the and, mm-hmm. Yeah, and the yeah. trolls and, and all of that. So we had all the toys set up in this very generous closet that was uh, very warm because that's where the chimney vented up out through from the furnace down in the cellar. So it was really the only comfortable, warm place in the house in the middle of the winter. And that's what, that was the playroom. I was kind of above that age. You know, I was 12 years old when we moved in, but April was five. So she would, and we were all in school, and she wasn't yet. So that was her play space. And he would come crawling out of the eaves and get down on the floor with her and just sit next to her and talk with her telepathically, which... To her seemed normal that's the way that he talked and she said that he would always be frightened when he would come he would always glance uh, very hesitantly over his back shoulder to you know back down into the eaves he was looking for somebody who was coming after him and she always said that he appeared to feel some sense of threat but once he settled down and he would sit next to her Occasionally, he would actually reach down and pick up one of her toys. So he was able to get enough energy to manifest in substance to the extent that he could touch her toys. Uh, and he never spoke. He never spoke to her you know, verbally, but she heard him through. She, whenever she'd say, I could hear him through, she would touch her forehead. And she could hear mm. him there. So she was very uh, in tune with him. And she never told anybody all the time that we were living there that he was there 
we knew that she spent an inordinate amount of time in the closet, and sometimes we would hear her talking aloud to someone, but then when we'd pass through or go in and check on her, there was no one there that we could see. Um, Cindy had a number of incidents in the middle bedroom, a number of incidents, hundreds, possibly thousands of incidents. Uh, and the the two that were most important in her life uh, was the little girl that would pass through and would be crying for her mother. And the other one was she'd come to be at night and crawl into bed with me because she'd say, the voices are back, the voices are back. And what they were was a group of voices that were completely surrounding her in her bed, Um, She never saw anything manifest in form. She never saw any kind of smoke or haze or mist. But she clearly heard them say in unison, there are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. There are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. And they would say it over and over and over again, almost like a chant or a mantra. And it would get to the point where she, she couldn't bury her head under her pillow It would just drive her nuts, so she'd get mad at them and tell them to go away and leave her alone, and then she'd cross over into my bedroom and get in bed with me. So there were many, many mornings I woke up with two or three sisters in bed with me because something (laughs) had happened during the course of the night. Thankfully, I had a really big bed. (laughs) Nice. And um, Now, with the the spirit, the little spirit boy, Harrison, was there anybody there by that name that you could find in the area? Well, the Richardsons, uh, the Richardson family built that house uh, and finished it in 1736, and the Richardson name is on the cornerstone of the house. However, uh, I don't know his. Uh, I'm not sure of his first name. It was an odd right. name. I mean, the Richardsons came over on uh, with the Pilgrims. I mean, they came over with the with the settlers that settled the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and then la- left the Mass Bay Colony and and went to Rhode Island. Um, and they're one of the original families. There was the Arnold family, the Richardsons, the Thayers, the Smiths, a number of families that left, abandoned the Mass Bay Colony, and followed Roger Williams down to Rhode Island. So they were one of the originals, and it was one of the original deeded pieces of property. It was deeded in 1680, and John Smith is the one who uh, actually did the survey of the property. The original farm was thousands of acres, and you have to drive to ask you, how big was the property when you were there? 200 acres. 200 acres. Yeah, we had 200 acres with our own river and our own lake and... I'm telling you, it was paradise, absolute paradise. Sounds wonderful. Did Do you know how much it, uh, could I ask you how much it was back then? It was $72,000. Oh, my God. $72,000 for an original colonial home with a massive barn and 200 acres of land. You can't buy a Maserati for Mind that bubble. now. That's what I was just thinking. Well, that'll be a, buy you a trailer now. Yeah. <laughs> I know, and Amazing. it wasn't that long ago. It really wasn't that long ago, but it was a lot of money back then. And my parents didn't really have any equity built up in the house. But even that, you know, even that was so odd. I mean, one day my sister Christine went to school and said, we found a farm, my mom found a farm, we're going to move. 
And the girl sitting next to her in class said, my aunt wants to buy you the, your house. And Chris was like, what? And she said, wow. yeah, my, her, she said, my aunt, um, she said, no, my mother, no, how was it? Her mother wanted to buy the house. She wanted to buy the house because they had grown up there and her aunt had been the one that sold it to my parents and they wanted to get it back in the family. Isn't that odd? It's so strange. But I know. You know what are the chances really? of that? I know. That's reason enough to play the freaking lottery, you know? Come on. I'm going to start playing that lottery. It's really uh, quite awesome. Uh, you know, part of my family did come over in the Mayflower. I was oh, no born kidding. in Boston, so I'm from that area originally. Oh, yeah. wow. So I feel very familiar with that part of your story. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of incredible the, that how much years and years and years of history go back in that just one part of that land. It it really is amazing. It's an amazing piece of property. It's got an amazing history. My mother compiled an entire notebook of information about the house, which included all of her sketches of the um, entities that she was seeing, uh, included a lot of her writing about them, uh, wrote down in detail about the incidents that occurred and how they occurred. And when N. Lorraine Warren came uh, in 1973, they conducted an investigation over the course of about a year. They came five or six times over that period. And um, close to about halfway through, Lorraine asked if she could borrow my mother's notebook and make copies of the documentation and copies of the information she had in there about her encounters. And my mother let her borrow it with the promise that it would come right back, and she never saw it again. She never uh, and saw it again. No, that's, uh, it's oh. gone. It's gone. And that's Is there any explanation? Or? Uh, no, no, there was never any explanation. And, you know, at some point you have to say, possession's nine-tenths of the law, and, you know, Mrs. Warren could always claim that my mother actually gave it to her, and that was not the case. I was there when the exchange occurred. I think that Mrs. Warren, and I write about this in Volume 3, I don't believe for an instant that Mrs. Warren would have ever done anything to deliberately hurt any one of us. I think that she thought that by taking that out of the house, she was actually protecting us, that she didn't want any That's of us, that you the said children, that. in I that book. Thought. That she stashed it, and that, and where the, all the other strange objects that they have collected. Mm-hmm. Well, she's it you know she does exist. have a reputation as a bit of a borrower. No, she does. Really? But, <laughs> yes, <laughs> she does. You know, here, let me take that for you and take care of that for you. And there's probably an attachment on this, and this should go away from your house and straight into her museum. It goes. Uh, You know, and people who've been around a long time, they know that about her. But I really just don't, I really don't believe that she's got a mean bone in her body. I don't think that she did that deliberately to take something of my mother's, of, you know, her belongings. I think that she thought that she was, oh, I'm sorry, I stepped outside and we have rude, horrible neighbors that have very loud cars. We can't even hear it. I worry about that over here because I have somebody playing drums, somebody... 
has a big dog. <laughs> Somebody else is pounding metal in the garage. I was like, but I don't mm-hmm. think I couldn't hear anything, so don't worry about it. Oh, good. I'm so glad because you know it's, no, it's Friday anything. night and they're coming out of the woodwork. Uh, and there's electricity in the air. We've got a thunderstorm in the air. It's very exciting, and the whole backyard is filled with lightning bugs. We have a couple of acres. Here. How it's beautiful! I miss that yeah. so much. Yeah. We don't oh have that here in California. Oh, they're beautiful. They're just everywhere. The air is thick with them. I remember. And it's so magical. It's so just spiritual to be out here. And the whole southern horizon is just on fire with lightning. But the storm actually hasn't arrived yet. It's gorgeous, yeah. And plus, my mother put the air conditioning on, and it's freezing in the house. Yes. So I had to come out for a minute. Um, but uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, yes. Uh, I, I really don't believe that um, Ed or Lorraine Warren were trying to exploit us. I think that uh, she was trying to help us. And I believe that same thing of Ed. And I have to believe that, you know, because they came into a household with five little girls. Um, you know, much that was kind of accurate, uh, how they, per, uh, per, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? How they portrayed it in the film was relatively yeah. accurate uh, in terms of our introduction. And we weren't that scared looking as, as they had the girls, you know, that, that look of trepidation on your face. Mm-hmm. Although April would not share any information about uh, her little friend Oliver. With, she wouldn't really talk to the Warrens at all. She was very uncooperative. And I found out years later that the reason that she didn't was because she didn't know quite how powerful they were, and she was afraid that if she told them that she had a little friend, that they would make him go away, and she didn't want that to happen. I see. Interesting, huh? Yes, very interesting that uh, people will get familiar and used used to to it. Um, Now, by your estimation, how many... Spirits, do you think were active in the house and on the land? Well, my mom said it was at least a dozen, and I think by her account, considering she had them all in her bedroom at once one night or one morning at dawn, it was just before dawn. Um, you know, I don't know how much time she had to do an actual head count that night because she was pretty much terrified out of her mind and was pretty sure that her house was about to burn down with her and her entire family in it. Um, So, you know, that was unfortunately the spirit that was tormenting my mother liked to torment her with fire or the illusion of fire. Uh, And so that was um, particularly upsetting to her. But she said that that night that occurred... Um, that there were a number of children, a number of children that um, the uh, the bakers, the what we found out later were the bakers, uh, the father and son, and their dog was there, uh, and then the spirit that came through that group came and approached her and hovered over her, and that's when she said that uh, evil incantation to her, which is why my mother described that gathering more as a coven. Uh, because everybody that was there seemed utterly disinterested in my mother's presence. It was almost like they were there as you know, a backup group for this one spirit. And she came forward and she leaned into my mother's face and she kind of growled at her and said, "'Twas oh. mistress once before you came and mistress here will be again. We'll drive ye wow. out with fiery broom, we'll drive ye mad with death and gloom.'" And it it required my mother being hypnotized to get the entire um, the entire chant 
out, but it was obviously something that was um, pre, uh, not preordained, but you know something. It was malice and forethought involved with uh, the utterance of that incantation uh, to my mother, and that's one of the things that she wrote down that went into her notebook. She wrote down the words of everything that she could remember. And then approximately a year later, uh, a doctor from Duke University hypnotized her and got the entire thing. And that's really when my father believed her, because my father is a hypnotist as well. And mm-hmm. um, he he's not a practicing hypnotist anymore because it just drained him too much. But when he was in the Navy... When he was a young man, he learned how to do it, and he mastered it. Uh, And he said, nobody can lie to you under hypnosis. They just can't. If they are legitimately hypnotized, they cannot lie. And my mother was legitimately hypnotized and relived the entire experience in mind. And it was so draining to her that when it was over, she looked at my father and she said, I hope you got all the information that you want because that will never happen to me again. Wow. It almost sounds like that incantation almost reminded me of the, the Salem witches and during that whole time and maybe even earlier England. It's just uh, mm-hmm. who knows in this stuff how far back it goes. Well, um, I, I have a question for you. Okay. Sure. You want to answer a question? Oh, sure. <laughs> okay. All right. Absolutely. I was going to wait till exactly uh, for about five more minutes, but let me get it in here. Uh uh, this is from Paula Liberté. He's in the uh, chat. He says, Hi, Hello, Paula. The, hey, Paul. At the start of the seance, who or what were trying to contact when this dark entity rushed through? Thank what you. had happened was uh, Mrs. Warren brought, uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren showed up at our house. They They called and they asked if they could come. Uh, my dad was just arriving back from a, an extended business trip, and when he walked in the door, um, my mother said that you know, Lorraine was kind of pushy and <laughs> she really wanted to come, that she and Ed wanted to come and talk to them that night. And he blew his stack uh, and just you know, basically said, I'm, I am uh, watching the Red Sox game tonight and I'm not receiving company. Well, it was well before the days of cell phones. They were already en route from Connecticut, so uh, there was nothing to be done. But when they showed up, they had a caravan with them. They had uh, a technical wow. crew. They had a uh, medium and a priest and uh, cinematographers, two cinematographers. They had a, a young lady with them who was taking care of the reel-to-reel in terms of getting the recording of it. Um, there was um, a, a whole my, – my father had to be peeled off the ceiling. He was just livid. And uh, they came in the house and – Because he was throwing a temper tantrum, my mother started to shut down. Because when he was exuding that kind of negativity, the best thing to do is shut down. So he spoke with Ed privately in the summer kitchen, which he had converted into a bedroom for them. And they went in there, and Ed told him that it was absolutely imperative that they conduct a seance and that what they wanted to do was identify the offending spirit and dispel her. When they first came to the house, they walked in, and Mrs. Warren walked directly over to our old black stove in the kitchen and put her hand on the corner of it and covered her forehead and her eyes and said within 30 seconds, 
I sense a malignant presence in this house. Her name is Bathsheba. She knew nothing about the history of that house, none of it, when she walked in there. And so, you know, on behalf of her, you know, giving credit where credit is due, it does bear out uh, in terms of her claims of being psychic or medium. Um, however, she was not the only uh, maleficent presence in the house. And there was something else there, and I don't know if it had been there forever or if it had been accidentally invited in or what the situation was. But whatever it was that attacked my mother that night came into her being um, almost instantly after the medium called, or she called it a gathering of souls, and was calling forth the spirits, conjuring the spirits during the seance. And whatever it was, body slammed my mother, just body slammed her. And um, she was sitting in a very heavy captain's chair, you know, the big kind that wrap around you and get the armrest. And it was solid rock maple. This chair had to weigh 30 pounds if it weighed an ounce. And it lifted up off the floor at least a couple of feet. And within literally a split second, my mother was tossed from the middle of the dining room into the parlor, and I heard her skull hit the floor. And she was not moving. This is after it spoke through her, after it took her body and wadded it into a ball in the middle of this chair. I mean, you would expect bones to break. You would expect to hear broken bones what was happening to my mother as she was screaming in pain. And this thing was talking through her. It was horrific, speaking in a language that does not exist on this planet. No recordings of that at that uh, Nothing. They got all the people nothing. There. All the camera equipment was destroyed in the cellar, all of it. I mean, and we're mm-hmm. talking thousands and thousands of dollars worth of camera equipment that was destroyed in the cellar, and there was nothing. The reel-to-reel was left completely white noise. Wow, horrifying. So yep, you it was. I'll tell you, you'll never find me to mother. I'm sorry, what, honey? You, you did witness these things happening to your mother? Yes, I did. And as I said, you will never, ever see me at a seance. You will never see me participate in anything like that. I do not touch Ouija boards. I do not, you know, I have enough uh, contact with the spirit world. I have regular contact with the spirit world. All of us do. All of us. And, uh, you know, everybody in your family. Everybody in the family. And, you know, whether it be from exposure or overexposure, um, uh, you know, younger in life or whether it be that uh, we're just conduits in our own right. I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea what the answer to that is. But what I do know is that whatever it was had the power to take her life and opted not to. It wasn't there to kill her. It was there to make its presence known with everyone else that was there. Because my mother has zero recollection of that night. None. Like it never even happened. Lost time. Well, I'm glad she doesn't need more I fear yep. or emotional pain. Or mm-hmm. and now, did physically did she have uh, injuries? Yes. Yes, and nobody called for an ambulance, and nobody did anything about it. Nobody did, because who wanted the police to come and see that little gathering going on? 
You know, it was a wow. different time back then. It was a different time. It really was. And there was no 911. You had to call directly to the police station and get an ambulance, which meant it would have it would have meant the police would have come, the ambulance would have come, the fire truck would have come. It would have, you know, it would have been a, a real big scene. And because my father was monitoring my mother's vital signs and he knew that she um, was still among the living, that uh, it took about an hour to get her back. Now, could you give me some background on your mother? Now, where was your mom born? And well, tell us a little bit about her. She's a Georgia peach. She was born okay. in Telfair County, Georgia which is about three hours south of here, below the fall line. Um, she has a, her background, her, her history, ancestral history is Cherokee Indian, uh, Scottish, Irish, a little bit, a touch of Irish, uh, English, and um, Welsh. I'm sorry, Dutch. <laughs> okay. I always screw that up. Um, so it, essentially, and my father is pure French. So essentially, um, I'm Heinz 57 variety, a real genetic mix. But you know, the thing that's interesting about all of this is, as mm-hmm. we look, we look back on the draw. You know, what what was it that drew us to the farm? I have to say that even though there's no proof anywhere that we have any ancestral connection whatsoever to anyone that lived or died at that farm. There is some kind of soul connection there, and I cannot explain it. I don't know if it's collective consciousness or, or what it is, but I do know that I had a sense of being home at the farm that I have never attained anywhere else. I've lived a lot of places, and it's the only place on this planet that feels like home to me. I dream about it routinely. I can close my eyes and see every square inch of that house and feel like I'm right back there in it. Uh, and it's, um, it's an attachment. It's the, you know, the attachment that we formed to the house, the attachment that the spirits formed to us was familial in nature. We had a sense of belonging there. All of us did right from the inception, and we all knew our way around that property as if we had all been born and raised there, and it was the only place that we'd ever lived. Do you believe in reincarnation or Absolutely. Absolutely I do, and the reason that I do is because of an incident that occurred at the farm while I was a, a teenager. I was 17 years old, and there was a manifestation of a spirit right next to me on the hearthstone. Uh, in front of the fireplace, and she was the spitting image of me as an old woman. Same exact facial features, identical eyes, a mirror reflection of myself as what would have been probably a 60-year-old woman dressed in 17th century clothing. Did you? Were you afraid, or what did you think at no. the time? No, I wasn't afraid. I was never afraid of the spirits. The only time I was ever terrified in that house was the night of the seance. Yeah. Uh, you know, I and I had concerns, of course, because my mother was obviously being harassed, and she seemed very deeply troubled by what was going on. Uh, and, of course, I was concerned for my sisters. And they would come to me. They wouldn't go to her. They'd come to me when they were having incidents. So... 
there was no escaping it for me. I was uh, you know, constantly being bombarded with this happened and this happened and this happened in the barn and this happened down at the river and this happened in the at the old cellar hole and this happened here and this happened there. And it was like after about six months of that, I went to my mother and I said, Mom, you know, we have got to talk. You know, the girls are coming to me and telling me things that you don't know about. And so she asked me to gather all of them except April, who was asleep, and she just perceived April to be too young. She did not want to scare her or talk about anything like this around her. But I went and got Nancy, Christine, and Cindy, and everybody met together down in the kitchen that night. And it was June of... 71 it was yeah right about six months after we moved in and uh, they spilled their guts everybody spilled their guts it was an amazing it was one of my most vivid memories of growing up at the farm was the night that um the five of us with uh, the four of us or three of us and then our mother um sat and talked about the experiences that we were having in the house and that was the first time that my mother said that's it we're selling this house, and we all said, no, 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 please, please, please don't do this. We love it here. We'll get used to it. Well, you know, we can live with this. It's not that terrible. Nobody's, you know, nobody's hurting us. But we didn't realize that my mother was being threatened and sometimes yeah. overtly threatened, and she didn't tell us that. We didn't know that for several years after we moved in the house. Because when she would have major incidents, she wouldn't share them. And the only one that I knew about directly was the night that the spirit uh, hovered over her because I was having a, a waking dream or a vision of it occurring while it was happening. And I was in what some people describe as sleep paralysis, but we mm. always described as being in the bubble. It was uh, it was not natural. It was supernatural. Whatever was happening to me, it felt like a small elephant. Uh, the weight of it was on my chest. I could not move in the bed. My eyes were wide open. I could hear my mother screaming for help, and I couldn't move. But my mother actually never uttered a sound. She was screaming in her own mind. Yeah, in her mind, yes. Yeah. Hmm. That has happened to me, and you do scream in your mind because you're trying to wake yourself up. You're trying to move. Well, she was wide awake too. There was, you know, no. Well, you know what I no mean reason. when you're trying yeah. to, when your body's paralyzed. You're trying mm -hmm. to snap it out of it. Um, mm -hmm. Well, you know, I've never had that happen to me, other than that night. I have. I have never had that happen to me again. Uh, so I know it was profound, and I know, and I came downstairs, I couldn't move for a while, and then my body seemed, the weight seemed to lift, and I just laid there in bed and tried to catch my breath, the screaming had stopped, everything had stopped, and when I was finally able to get out of bed, I went downstairs, and there was my poor mother sitting on the love seat in the parlor, and she was sketching this thing that was hanging over her. And I picked up her cup of coffee because I had my throat was so dry it felt like I had been the one screaming. And I, when I reached down to take her coffee and take a sip of it, and I looked down into her lap and I saw what she was drawing, and I instantly recognized it and I dropped her cup of coffee and it hit the coffee table and shattered into a million pieces. Oh. And the clock, just my father's old, 
Yeah, and my father's grandfather clock that was sitting right behind her had stopped at 5.15 a.m., which is when the event occurred. And I came downstairs about 6.30 in the morning. Uh, And every time that she had an incident in the bedroom, it would stop the clock. And after a while, uh, they just didn't even bother with it. They just let it sit at 5.15 for like the next seven years. And uh, interestingly, when we moved, that clock worked perfectly fine every place else, but it wouldn't it wouldn't uh, do the job at the it farm. Work time, yeah. Well, time was suspended there. I mean, it was like we lived in a vapor lock. We lived in a – the kids at school, sometimes we'd come in and we'd hear, oh, my God, you look so tired. Didn't you get any sleep last night? Well, no. Actually, no, we didn't get any sleep last night because this happened or that happened. Uh, But we learned really soon. We learned within probably six months or a year that we couldn't even tell our closest friends about what was, you know, I mean, we were new kids anyway, and it's hard enough to make new friends. You don't need to let people know that you're the spooked family up from Round Top, you know. And they were telling other people. They were kids. Of course they were telling other people. And we didn't think that, you know, there was anything uh, so terribly... We didn't realize what a taboo subject it was at the time and how unusual it was that we lived in such a supremely haunted place. But none of us, none of us had had any experience with anything supernatural, paranormal, manifestations of any kind prior to moving to the farm. And we visited the farm a number of times before we actually moved in. And none of us have any recollection of seeing or hearing or feeling or sensing anything untoward. But the day we moved in that we owned it, all bets were off. Ah, party time. That's because you became part with the house. You're now living there. Um, the calling number tonight is 619-924-9744. If you have any questions, you can call in live. The paranormal is fake and sacred. And speak with our guest tonight, Andrea Perone. Uh, I have a question about the deaths taking place. Um, there was many suicides. Um, I didn't count how many, but so many different ways. How many suicides would you guess happened on that property? I really I couldn't guess. I you know I, when you think about eight generations of people yeah. lived and died at that house prior to our arrival, and some of them never left, and some of them died away from the house, but we had inklings of yeah. their spirits there, including little Prudence, who had been raised in that house and was killed as, as almost she was almost twelve years old when she was raped and murdered at the adjacent farm um, across about a couple of miles away. Uh, She had been taken in because she had been orphaned. Her father, Eber Arnold, and her mother, Charlotte, both passed away, and she was uh, their only child. And so she was taken in at the Richardson farm, which they were intermarried, uh, and that's where she was attacked and killed. And interestingly, her attacker... Tell us about the intermarriage again, who with who? Well, it was from the time that the farm was built until we bought it, it was owned by one extended family. 
uh, and it was built by the Richardsons. Uh, the Richardsons intermarried with the Arnolds, and it, then it later on became the Arnold Estate, and the Arnolds were there. They were Quakers and were there for probably 150 years or more. Uh, and Mr. Kenyon, who we bought the house from, was married to a descendant of the Arnolds. Okay. So it, they lived there for years, decades and decades. And um, Mrs. Kenyon died, I think, probably seven or eight years before he actually put the house on the market. His son prompted him to do it because he was in his 70s and it was just too much property for him to keep up with. And he was living so remotely, you know, miles and miles away from the village that if anything were to happen to him, uh, nobody could get out there to help him in time. So that's why he ended up selling the property. But his heart never left that place. He loved that house. But interestingly, the day we moved in, he took my father for a walk. And Now, this was in the middle of a raging snowstorm the day we were moving in. He's like, Roger, come for a walk with me. You know, I, I'm all for hearty Yankees, but that was kind of insane. And he took mm-hmm. him outside and said, uh, Roger, for the sake of your family, leave the lights on at night. And my father didn't oh. take it as any, meaning anything more than, you know, big house, new place, one bathroom on the first floor, you know, make sure you've got lights on for the girls so that they can navigate these new environs. Um, and that's not what he was saying at all. And it was over the course of the next few months, uh, we heard from a number of the people in the area that there was never a time that they drove past the uh, Kenyan place at uh, at night, that that house wasn't lit up like a Christmas tree. Every light in the house was on all night long, every night. Before you guys. Yeah. Yeah, but Mr. Kenyon didn't want to talk about that. My mother pressed him one time and said, you know, Earl, I'm hearing very strange sounds in the parlor. And he just winked at her and he said, swallows in the chimney, my dear, swallows in the chimney. You know, that was his rationale for Mm -hmm. what was happening there. But there is no way that that man lived as many decades in that house as he did and didn't know exactly what was going on in that house. I'm not saying that what he and his wife or family experienced there was to the extreme that we did. Uh, I think that in I think that we were the uh, the perfect combination of people to live there together, to dwell in that place together. When you've got five little girls, you know, all pubescent and prepubescent, that's a lot of energy. And they just, we basically fed the beast. We were the feast for the beast, you know? Yes. I've heard that that, uh, all that kinetic energy leads to poltergeist activity and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, we had a lot of that. We have a question. Do you want to answer a live question? Sure, absolutely. Okay, hold on a second. Okay, this is Erica. I answer anything. Erica, Hi, I, I Can we have your first Hi. name, please? My name's Joe. First time, long time. Hi, Hi is this my Joe Frieza? Yeah, uh, thank you so much for taking my call. I, you know, uh, Robert, is that on the phone? Say that anyway. again, hon. 
I I have a, a similar uh, story about um, a house. When I was a kid, uh, my parents and I we would go to Long Beach Island. That's that's by the Jersey Shore, you know. Yeah. And we would rent this house, and it was only in my room that I would hear these these sounds. And my mom always told me it was just the house settling, but I knew I just knew it was something else. You know? Did you ever get that feeling where you just know? In your gut, Do I ever you get that feeling? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Joe. Are you Joe Fraser? Are you Joe Fraser? Yes, I'm Joe Fraser. Oh, that's my, okay. he's my buddy. Charlene, he's okay. my buddy. All he right. is. So, he's anyway, a good guy. Anyway, my, my goddamn story, I was <laughs> in this house, and this, 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 this smoke cloud appeared, and it was this giant ghost vagina, and it said the career of Kenny Michaels. Um, no, 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 no. No, we're not playing. No, we're not playing that game. That's not my joke. My joke wouldn't talk like that. No, that's why I I kept asking uh, if you knew this guy. So uh, I'm going to edit that out. So yeah, uh, he was he was in the um, Joe was in the chat earlier. I saw that he was in the chat, but he messaged me that he couldn't stay for the whole show because he had to go to work. Right. So uh, yeah, no, that wasn't him. Well, that's okay. See, that's that's so, the problem with taking callers because most people are. That's the way I feel. Yeah, I was. Yeah. That's why I kept questioning it because I had a bad feeling. That's why. Yeah, I was but saying you know, it. most people are good as gold, and they won't jerk you around mm-hmm. like that. They just won't. Yeah. You know, but yeah. and most people, you know, most of our power people are just absolutely mm-hmm. wonderful. But God oh, knows, what them. would the world be without jerks to keep the you know. We've been be- dealing with that myself. I've been dealing with that. And I don't know if you've been following It doesn't happen star. too often, but I had a feeling about him. But then mm-hmm. I thought you knew him or, or he wouldn't have had any more time on there. I would just get rid of him. But yeah. anyway, no, that's he right. wasn't that's answering okay. my question. Well, so you know. That's, that's why I kept questioning him. But anyway. i got a couple gonna, of bloggers out there that are targeting me yeah. and along with oh. uh, my friend John Zaffis and my friend Chip Coffee. And, you know, just being absolute um, trolls. And, um, and yeah, I just that's won't a good have anything to do with them. They Say that really again. are so bored and have such a tiny life that they have yeah. to mess with people, you know, and I don't, I don't get it. But anyway, it's... Uh, now, there was an incident that happened uh, in the house concerning a wood box, and it was with your sister. And, yes, my uh, sister. Were you in the mm-hmm. room at the time? No. No, I wasn't okay. there for that event. Um, Christine was there, my mother, um, and uh, Cindy and Nancy were all involved with that incident. And they were playing hide-and-seek. I didn't come in until the very end of it, but they were playing hide-and-seek mm-hmm. in the house, and Cindy decided she was going to go out to the woodshed, and she opened up an old wood box that Mom and I had found in the lower part of the woodshed. And what she did was... Um, uh, crawl into it and lower the lid. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. This lid, uh, it was like the like the cover of a book. It would just close down. It would just completely close down. But there was no latch. There was no lock. There was nothing that would keep you from being able to just lift it right back up. And Cindy got mm-hmm. in the wood box to hide, and then nobody came to find her out there. And she tried to get out of the box, and she couldn't. She could not move. She couldn't budge. 
Um, it was as she's like the whole weight of the world was sitting on top of it, and there were no holes in the box. So, and it was a tight, tightly made box, and she was running out of air. It was Cindy describes it as a life-threatening situation, and Christine had the same thing happen to her in uh, in an old antique trunk that also had completely dysfunction. It had a lock on it, but the lock didn't work. Uh, it was completely rusted. So, and Christine got caught in uh, the old antique trunk and couldn't get out. So it was. Uh, those were threats. Those were threats um, issued to my mother. You know, this is what I can do to your children. Yeah. But what did they want out of her? Uh, I, I think that, I think that the one spirit, and I don't think that it was Bathsheba, um, I think that it was probably more likely Mrs. John Arnold, and she hanged herself in the barn when she was 93 years old. Uh, and that was back what? in the late, yeah, I know, I don't even know how the but poor woman got up. she made it 93 years, I don't get it. Yeah, well, you know, who knows what kind of pain she was in. Who knows if there was yeah. something whispering in her ear to tell her to do what she did. Who knows? You know, that place was very active, and um, this was in, the, I believe, the late 1700s that Mrs. Arnold um, did what she did in the barn. And my father has always maintained that the spirit that was uh, attacking my mother, going after her and threatening her, so overtly was uh, more likely Mrs. Arnold because uh, the apparition clearly, visibly had a broken neck. It was obvious that she had a broken neck um, and her head was hanging off the side of her body. And Bathsheba did not die that way. She died of paralysis. And the doctor who examined her corpse said it was as if her body had turned to stone. Mm. Wow. But that was 100 years after. She died 100 years after Mrs. Arnold did. And the language uh, that was used in the incantation of this spirit with the broken neck hanging over my yeah. mother um, was, uh, was mistress once afore ye came and mistress here will be anon, will drive ye out with fiery broom, will drive ye mad with death and gloom. Um, that's archaic language. Even in the 1800s, that was archaic. It was had fallen out of use. So um, that was another reason why we thought that this was an older spirit and could have actually been a spirit that was harmful to Bathsheba. I know we don't even know if Bathsheba lived in that house or if she was just babysitting at that house when this death occurred, uh, because we can't find any further records. And, of course, whatever my mother did have compiled all those years ago ended up with Mrs. Warren. So, you know, she certainly at 74 years old isn't going to go back up and try to retrace what took her two years to compile uh, up there. So, you know, we just let the record stand for itself. But the fact is that, uh, you know, this is a memoir. It's not a history book. Uh, we re what we're recording in this is what we remember of the experiences that we had, what these apparitions were like, uh, what our interactions with them were. Um, you know, and trying to put a, a face and a name with them is impossible. 
you know, going back two, three hundred years. It's impossible. Yeah. But but what I tell people all the time is it's not who they were that matters, that they exist as spirits is what matters. That's what matters. Because from the age of 12 years old, I've known, no question in my mind, that something, some part of us goes on, that there is something beyond our mortal existence. And I have always found that to be a very comforting notion. And, uh, you know, because I don't, for myself speaking personally, I don't want to Mm -hmm. think that we just live and die and then that's it and there's nothing and that everything that we accrue and accumulate in this life in terms of knowledge, in terms of our sensitivities and sensibilities, in terms of, you know, the music that we listen to and the the love that we share with other people that, you know, all of that is for naught, that that's not somehow collected some way and is carried on in our energy field. And I know that it is. It is. I don't. I don't believe any energy can be uncreated. I think it turns into something else or it moves on, but it it is always there. And um, do you think that it has a curse on it because you know like a cause and effect thing? Something happened to someone, and somebody uh, decided. Okay, so they focused on your mother, who was a leader of your family, and mm-hmm. they somehow felt that she was a leader, and so she was attacked. Yeah, like, how she, do you how do you explain yeah, that? Yeah, she was. I think that she represented a threat to the spirit in that house that perceives herself to be the mistress of the house, and that yeah. my mother posed a threat because she loathed my mother, she lusted after my father, and she was very covetous of us, the five children. Yes, because this sounds like a real person to me. Yeah, real she, wanted, of a person. she wanted my mother gone, she wanted my father to stay, and she wanted to claim us, the children. And so in that respect, it's interesting to think in terms of that respect because Bathsheba, of course, lost. Um, three of her children, but while they were still toddlers, you know, and when you think back at that time, a common cold could kill you. Now, there was just no treatment oh, yeah. for anything. You either got through it or you died. There were so many diseases and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what a, what a miserable way to live. You know, and can you imagine? I mean, I never had children, so I can't imagine. Uh, what it feels like, Uh, the closest that I've ever come to that kind of pure, intense love is, you know, I I love animals. I have a lot of animals in my life. Um, But, uh, you know, to actually birth a child and then watch it die, I, I don't think I could even wrap my mind around that. And I don't know how people continued on, how they survived. Now, it was not unusual back in that time for there to be, you know, five, six, seven, eight kids born to a couple. There was absolutely no form of birth control other than abstinence. And there was also the dealing with the fact that if you had that many kids, you were probably going to lose half of them. 
And you need a lot of kids to work the farm. I mean, kids were a commodity or a possession at that time. It was a well, and there thing, were but... there were a lot of indentured servants in our area. I'm sure you're aware of that. Indentured servitude was uh, really big. There were also slaves in New England too. Uh, but at the farm, it was the indentured servants that built the stone walls and dug the cellar hole and. Now, according to the history on the farm. And then the uh, Quakers, the family, uh, the Arnolds were Quakers. And during the Civil War, the word was from Mr. McEachern that um, the house was very active uh, as a part of the Underground Railroad. Because, of course, the Quakers were completely against slavery. Yes, in war. And did their part in a big way to move thousands, multiple thousands of people up to Canada so that they could live free. Just uh, how interesting that uh, that what that whole thing was and the medicines and the um, the whole treatment and then you got the witches thing going on at uh, mm-hmm. actually, you know, not only Salem witch trials, uh, this, this seems to go back uh, so long did uh how many years are we talking about well you know the the salem witch trials were in the 1600s and bathsheba wasn't born until 1812 um so you know even though she was accused of being a witch and she was suspected of being a witch and the the word was that she had you know sacrificed this infant and had um, done so for the sake of her, on her own behalf, making a deal with the devil and a pact for uh, eternal youth and beauty. Uh, Apparently, she was a stunningly beautiful woman. And so the men would stare at her with rapacious eyes, and the women would loathe her because she walked the earth. Um, So she had some strikes against her before this incident even occurred. Uh, however, she was, you know, this was a dismissed endeavor. And uh, it was an inquest. It never even went to a trial. It never went to court proper. There was no jury involved. This was a judge saying there is no evidence here that this young woman did anything to this baby. And um, so, of course, it was well before the days of DNA evidence so uh, there was no proof. There was no way to prove, and she apparently uh, made her own case during the inquest. And uh, people came from miles and miles around. It was a big deal. Uh, and it didn't even happen in town. It happened in uh, the, the town of Burrowville was not even incorporated yet. Uh, and so the, what would have been the town seat was actually the next biggest uh, township that was south of us, which was Chapachet, Rhode Island, and that's where it occurred. Okay, now I know the answer to this. We have another question for you. This is from Deb Suter. Um, have you been back to the farm uh, since you moved? And I know that you actually have gone back and uh, interviewed uh, the current residents, right? Uh, yes, I have. And uh, unfortunately, and this is... Uh, Uh, a very um, uh, black cloud over the film. I had a a really nice 
relationship with the owners of the farm. We were friends for 28 years. I was free to go there whenever I wanted to. Uh, I visited frequently. Uh, It was a lovely, lovely relationship. And when the film opened, all hell broke loose up there. And I guess she wanted me to do something to make it stop. I did everything in my power to make it stop, but I can't be in charge of the entire lunatic fringe uh, in the world. And I did everything that I could, uh, and it caused a terrible rift between us. And not only do I feel that I lost an important friendship over it, but I feel that I lost access to a place I love because of it. And it it brings a lot of sadness to my heart, and she's made some very harsh accusations uh, against myself, against my mother, against the film producers and the company and, you know, the whole nine yards. And, you know, yes, the the film is, uh, you know, I've been out in a thousand different venues telling everybody the you know, film is predominantly fictionalized version of what happened to us. You know, they've got Bathsheba Sherman killing her own child in 1863. She was an old woman by then. She was well beyond childbearing years. Uh, you know, my mother was not possessed. What happened didn't happen in the cellar. I can go on and on and on in yeah. terms of the discrepancies of the film. But unfortunately, we live in a time and an age and a culture where if somebody sees a movie and it says based on a true story, they believe every single frame of that film. And after it opened, uh, some absolute maniac went up and desecrated uh, Bathsheba's gravestone. And, you know, that has been sitting there since 1885. And, um, and there were a number of incidents of trespassing, a number of things that happened at the farm. Uh, and it uh, completely and totally unnerved the owners and uh, caused a tremendous rift between us because, for some reason, I copped all the blame for all of it. And she even well, you know, went on record saying, I never told her that there was going to be a film made. But the fact is that I have it on record having a conversation with her on film about the film, you know, from yes. four or five years ago. I you know? watched it. I watched yeah, it. Yeah, she's the and one. You're very friendly. She's totally aware of what's going on. There's mm-hmm. still things going on at the place. Mm-hmm. You know, she's and denying all of that now. And you know, yeah, I get that. I understand. Okay, but you know, she said it. Okay. I. She. I she's think, telling um, everybody people, now. Go away. No ghosts here you know and i understand that but then to take that quantum leap to uh the parents made all of this up who could make this story up you know people have known about what's happened at our house for 40 years the kids that we grew up with all knew and many of them had incidents at the farm you know there are dozens and dozens of people that are walking this planet right now that had first-hand encounters at that farm that were friends of ours while we were growing up there. You know, there's just no denying mm. it. I have been completely and utterly consistent on this story, as has every other really member of my family, for 40 years. She's the one that did a 180. She and did, blamed because it on I, me. I've seen it, her talking, telling about everything, talking about the book, uh, totally friendly. But I, what happened is I think that... Um, Maybe something happened to her in the house that scared her, and also uh, 
you know, the things going on the outside trying to make it stop, uh, you know, real people that are jackasses yeah. trying to bug or, or or whatever. But I don't think any of that helps. I think continued honesty and calling the police is what works to me. Yeah, well, you, you know, Continue to be honest that... and call the police. And, you know, you don't say somebody's a liar because you don't like the repercussions. Yeah, well... That's not how it went down, and I'll tell you, it, it broke my heart. It broke my heart um, because, you know, she had uh, she had the ghost hunters there that I had absolutely nothing to do with. I didn't know them at the time, uh, and they did an episode on her house, like, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, um, mm-hmm. That and she ended the episode with, I guess I do have a haunted house. Well, there it is. You know, I mean, they captured legitimate evidence uh, on film. And that episode of Ghost Hunters is available to anybody worldwide, anytime. So really, she's just discrediting herself. You know, and I'm not saying that it's a history book. I'm not saying that, you know, it's not filled with documents. It's filled with family photographs and our memories of our time living at the farm. You know, so I've talked to her at length about... Uh, numerous incidents, none of them, you know, nearly as bad as what happened to us. But, you know, like I said, the dynamics of having five little girls and, you know, a very uh, spiritually in tune mother um, had to have something to do with it. I don't know why we ended up at the farm, and I don't know why we had the experience that we had. But to, you know, simply null and void it for the sake of convenience and then try to ruin my reputation on top of that, um, which she failed at. I mean, you know, that's the bottom line here. You know, people do believe us because it is true and it is a real story and it did happen exactly the way it's written. Yes, and anybody that really wants to uh, go back, go on YouTube. You can find a conversation with this woman, the current owner, and it's all there. Uh, our guest tonight is telling the truth and I stand behind her 100% because I did a lot of background investigation myself. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, you're telling the truth and uh, uh, where can everybody get your books? We still have a little more time, but I want to... I've provided a direct link to Amazon. So tell them about your books again. Oh, great, yeah. Amazon's very good. They're very quick. Uh, and if somebody wants a little bit of a discount, they'll knock, I think, about $5 a volume off. If you buy, I have an arrangement with my publisher, you can go directly to AuthorHouse. That's one word, lowercase, AuthorHouse.com. Uh, and just click on the bookstore, put in House of Darkness, House of Light, Volume 1, Volume 2, and Volume 3 should go online uh, relatively soon. Um, so I don't have a, an exact release date on it yet, but I will post that when I do. Um, so I would say um, that's probably the best way to get it. They ship very quickly. Uh, and then a lot of people, what a lot of people do is I tour around the country doing book signings and stuff. They'll show up with the book already, and I'll just sign it for them. Uh, and you bring that, books that with you? Really. I, I have books with me, yes, wherever I okay, go. Good. But if I run out, um, I take orders for them and then ship them inscribed to people. They know okay. me very well at our little local uh, uh, post office here. As a matter of fact, all the P. 
people that work at our post office have been following the story, have read the books, are waiting with bated breath for volume three. It's precious when I walk in. They're like, oh, our local celebrity's here. I'm like, I am so not a celebrity. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yes, you are. You are to us, to the paranormal peeps. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I love the paranormal um, community. I really do. I I mean, there are so many great people. I have met fabulous, fabulous people. You know, and we're all pursuing the same thing. You know, all we're really looking for is what I already know. You know, I've I've got my proof. I'm convinced. I'm so convinced it's ridiculous. I've been convinced since I was a kid. So it's, for me, it's not, um, it's, it's not like, I'm pursuing it to prove something that I already know exists. I just think that, you know, there's a there's something that's irrefutable evidence out there, and I would love to be one of the people involved with disseminating that because I think for the world population to stop worrying about dying and take some time to live would make this world a better place. Wouldn't it lose your fear and... I think mm-hmm. fear feeds a lot of this, and then lose your fear and going with, going with more love. And this we're talking about with, with everybody, with your family, with your coworkers, friends, strangers, just going everybody, with animals, just, uh, just with everything and everybody, going with yeah. more love. Okay, now yeah. I have a I have a great question from Deb Suter. Uh, mm-hmm. If it ever goes back on the market, would you like to buy the place back? The instant it goes on the market, I will buy the place back. I will, even if I have to have somebody in the room taking care of the paperwork for me on my behalf, my lawyer, Um, because I feel quite certain that the current owner does not want to see me. (laughs) However, Yeah, you've got to go in there and have somebody do it for you because uh, I wouldn't want anything to hamper that because I I think that you would do it justice and maybe bring some peace to a place. Well, and, yeah, uh, you know, and I'm I'm not a fighter. I don't want to argue with anybody, you know. I, I turn and walk away from that kind of thing. Um, but the the bottom line is that I am supposed to have that place back, and I don't know when that will be, how it looks, when it will happen. I have no idea about any of that. But I do feel drawn and compelled to to be in that house not to live there. I don't think that I will ever live there again. But I do want to open it as a, a spiritual and a research facility because I want the very best paranormal researchers in the country to have access to it and in the world to have access well, to it. Now, has any of the acreage been sold off or split off at all? Yes. Uh-huh. It's down to 10 acres. What? Yeah, I know. Don't you don't even get me going about that. I, I don't but, you know, about that. It, it, that gave it, me a pain off on my down my arm. I, but anyway, I know, uh, I know. Me hurt. too, me too. Wow. But you know, who knows? Who knows? Maybe it can be put back together again in time. But uh, you know, still, it's it, that doesn't take away from the beauty of the place. It doesn't take away from no, it doesn't. you know the the majesty of it and yeah. the land is still wild and it can be walked and it's absolutely beautiful. You know, it's interesting that you should uh, bring up the the subject of fear. That's a, a subject that I talk about 
a great deal. Uh, and mm-hmm. the reason is because I feel that fear um, is is the most powerful uh, negative emotion. It doesn't have any competition. And that the only thing that can conquer it is its opposite, which is love. I don't think that hatred is the opposite of love. I think that fear is. And that hatred is um, the spawn of the devil, fear. Uh, It functions in our lives to such an extent. We give it so much control over our lives. We're so worried throughout our lives about the potential of our lives ending that we just forget to live fully. And I really think that that's the key to uh, mortal transcendence is that we get past that and we learn to live in the moment and we accept the fact that we are essentially spiritual beings who are having a corporeal uh, experience right now in this vessel, but that we are essentially spirit. I, I absolutely believe that. I believe in reincarnation. I believe that we are recycled souls, that we come back again and again until we learn to get it right and we learn our lessons well on this plane of action, and then we ascend. Uh, And I don't espouse any particular religion. I am not uh, religiously oriented, but I am a deeply spiritual individual. And I I truly believe that, that that, that that's the crux of the matter. I think that there is an infinite intelligence in the universe that we have called God. And I absolutely believe in its power and its benevolence. Uh, and in terms of its interaction with our lives and often the um, the intervention in our lives that keeps us safe inexplicably from time to time. Um, you know, I do my own show uh, that um, I'm so, so proud of. Um, my Tell partner, us about your my, show. Uh, George L- R. Lopez info. is my co-partner, uh, my paranormal partner, as it were, in the show. It's called A World Awakening, and it's on Tuesday nights at 9 o'clock on Blog Talk Radio. Um, and we're about to go with a very large global network um, because we've only been doing this since February, and we've got quite a following. We've got people in Europe that listen every week. We've got people around the globe that listen to the show every week. And what George and I focus all of our attention and affection on is the um, awakening and how we are we have it within our power to change the world and that's the most important thing as far as i am concerned this the telling of this story launched mm-hmm. this entire notion that this story came out when it came out how it came out with purpose and reason and that it is part of the enlightenment Definitely. and that's what i work toward Every single day, that's what I work for. Can I ask I you a question? For. Can you give us the address to your show? Because I want to put it down here. Oh, sure. Um, well, actually, what I'll do is I'll, uh, I'll, it's on, all you have to do is go on Facebook and type in A World Awakening, and it'll pop right up. Uh, it's got a picture of me that's 10 years old. Believe me, my hair is not that color anymore. Uh, but George won't change it because he likes that picture, I guess. I don't know why. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, it's right there, uh, A World Awakening on Facebook. And we also have, uh, we archive the shows on YouTube. And, of course, they're ar- archived with Blog Talk Radio as well. And we have a very, very eclectic mix of guests. Um, for instance, George and I just went to, to the um, Star Works Symposium up in Chicago a few weeks ago. 
and we met some wonderful people that are, you know, very serious ufologists, uh, including Mr. Lee Spiegel, who writes for the Huffington Post and uh, had a great deal to do with uh, bringing the whole UFO uh, question to the United Nations decades ago, uh, has worked with J. Allen Hynek um, and became very close personal friends with him. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to just name drop here. Anybody that knows anything about ufology knows these people's names. Um, and we had him for two hours Tuesday night. We've had the um, head high priestess of nine covens, Lady um, Morgana Avalone, uh, is a high priestess from New York City. We had her on a few weeks ago. We've had Paula Harris. We've had uh, a number of fascinating guests and all of the shows are archived so people can just pop in and listen to them anytime that they like. I love okay, doing so the show. Okay, so you on World Awakening on Facebook? A, yeah, A World Awakening, A World Awakening. A World Awakening. Okay, let me see again. Let me try it again. I'll just uh, let me make that clear. You can just like it and it'll let you post and everything. I love Facebook. I'm madly in love with Facebook. I'm, oh, there you are. I get it now. I got it. I got it. So I'm going to like it right now. So everybody, I encourage yeah. you to go and uh, A World Awakening. Yeah, go and like me. And have all her information on there. So I, I just went and liked it. So everybody else, go and like her page so you won't lose it. And it's called A World Awakening on Facebook. And, and my, uh, my partner, George, in this endeavor, he's the most mm-hmm. brilliant man I've ever met in my life. I mean, he is so tuned in. Now, we travel around the country together, and we do a presentation called The Merging of Science and Spirituality, because he's like the science guy, you know. He's yeah. uh, very um, uh, very pragmatic and very math- mathematically minded. He's former um, intelligence for the United States Air Force. He's just, you know, one of these guys. He's like right on it, and it's about evidence, yeah. evidence, evidence, you know. And me, I float around in the ether like, oh, you know what, I don't have to take a picture of every spook I see, you know, and it does, that doesn't invalidate my experience because I didn't get it on film because I didn't have a swing on my uh, my wrist, you know, so right. I just dated myself saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you, what is that? <laughs> No, Remember the old you. Polaroid swing? I'm, I'm, I'm class of 52, so I'm old. But uh, we have another caller. I can't guarantee uh, it's not going to be some crackhead. So let's see. Okay, caller, you're live with Paranormal and Sacred, area code 267. Can I have your first name, please? Charlene, this crackhead is Scotty. You've had me on your show twice. Oops. No. <laughs> <laughs> I've oh, I think he's Scotty. I didn't mean to call you a crackhead. I mean, uh, no, that's quite all right. I've been first. trying to get in for a while, and um, Skype wouldn't let me. I tried calling through Google; that wouldn't let me. So I'm using the last yeah, I, my uh, few minutes on my cell phone to give you a call. Um, yeah, thank I'll you for calling in. And you know, no, oh, wait a minute. And I just uh, there was uh, a lot, a lot of hits tonight. So what it was is sending this wheel spinning, so you might have had a little problem. So anyway, do you have a question no for our guest tonight, Scotty? Yes, I will talk to you off the air because I have a lot to tell you, but Ms. Perrin, it's an honor to speak to you. Oh, um, please call me Andrea. I'm so informal. Andrea. <laughs> Sorry, Andrea. My, That's okay. It's a pleasure to, to speak with you um, as a paranormal investigator myself and someone who's had 
uh, a gazillion experiences, which Charlene could fill you in on at great length. Yeah. Um, you are a huge inspiration to people like me that have gone through things like this when no one believes you. Mm-hmm. And the things that you went through are, you know, makes my experience is nothing compared to, you know, some of the horrific things that you've had to see and face. Quick question, because I know that the show's about to go off the air. Um, about The Conjuring, and if somebody asked this question earlier, forgive me, because I've had it on mute most of the time trying to get through. But my question is, with the film The Conjuring, which was based on some of the accounts that happened in your life, how true to life was that compared to how Hollywood likes to just change things? Hollywood toned that story down so far down that it was virtually unrecognizable compared to how our lives really were. See, the thing mm-hmm. is, they they knew the story. They knew because I gave them the information. And they they didn't feel that they could bill it as based on a true story if the truth was literally unbelievable. So okay. they uh, toned it down. Usually Hollywood's got a reputation for exaggerating uh, a story. Mm-hmm. But in our case, they really went in the opposite direction because it was it was too much. I don't even know how what happened to my mother could even be recreated in CGI. I don't even know how it could be done. Um, right. It, it was they didn't want to. Well, James wanted to make sure that he got a PG rating, which he didn't mm-hmm. anyway. And I was with him when he was told that it was an R, and that the review board came back and said that they gave it an R because it was just too scary. And when he said, "What can we take out of it in order for it to get a PG-13?" They said nothing. Um, so he had to be peeled <laughs> off the ceiling. Um, uh, yeah, that was <laughs> that was. That happened at WonderCon last year. Oh, my God. Um, and he, um, you know, he wanted to tell the story as authentically as he possibly could. But it was written by screenwriters who were both lovely people, Chad and Carrie Hayes, absolutely lovely men. We've known them and their families, and, you know, they were great. We went out to the set, and we worked with them for an entire day. Um, so they, there is our heart is in that film. As a family, our heart is in that film. They got the right. big picture right. Good conquers evil, and love conquers fear. That, that right. they really got absolutely the right. Awesome. Uh, my second quick question would be, um, if I could reach out to you uh, via Facebook, could I send you a request? Um, you my can. Name is I, Scott I'm Francis up to 5,000. I, have, um, oh, okay. I have as many friends as Facebook allows. Um, but, got however, you. you know, by attrition, people kind of fall off here and there. They right. close their accounts or whatever. And um, right. so every few days I get to bring a few more people in. So send okay, me something well, I in the will other file. Contact you. I'll contact you via your other page on there. And if you need any verification from me, I'm sure Charlene would vouch for my credibility. Well, um, but I'm not a crazy guy trying to stalk you, you or start any weird phone calls. Um, but I also have <laughs> okay. an upcoming show that Charlene knows about, and I would love to have you on sometime. So thank you for taking my call, Charlene. Cool. Great show as always. Yes, and I need to Good have love. you on my show soon, too. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's yes, great, honey. I'll calling. be happy to join you. Happy to join awesome. you. No problem. You women have a Bye-bye, wonderful sir. weekend, and God bless. God bless, okay, God honey. Bless. Thanks Take for care. calling. Okay. Um, that's a very polite call. It was a little bit of balm to my heart after whatever. But anyway, uh, also you're gonna uh, you're appearing in a couple of different places. You want to tell you, tell us where you're going to be appearing and so people can come see you live. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, this coming weekend, uh, no, not like not immediately tomorrow weekend. The following weekend, 6th, 7th, and 8th, I will be just down the road from where I live. I will be in downtown Atlanta. I live west of the city. Um, and I'll be there with George Lopez, my partner in the paranormal, in all things paranormal. Uh, and we will be delivering our address together. And I will be on a panel of extreme haunted, in quote, survivors, although I, I object to that word sometimes. But uh, we're going to have Johnny Zaffis there with us. He'll be on the panel. George is moderating. Uh, that's going to be a great time. Anybody that's in earshot and can get to Through the Veil uh, at the uh, uh, downtown, I can't remember the name of the hotel, but it's all on the website. Um, yes. Just type in Through the Veil. And then... Uh, our next big trip is up to Rhode Island, and this year the Rhode Island Ocean State Paracon, which is hosted by Ken DaCosta and Rise Up Paranormal, is at the Harrisville Assembly Theater. And, you know, Harrisville is now the center of the paranormal universe, and, um, and all the arrangements were made, and we are throwing a massive Paracon for everybody in Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island. People are coming in from all over the country for this event. It's going to be absolutely phenomenal. So I encourage anybody that can get there to be there. And that happens on July 19th and 20th. There are going to be some very special events that occur that weekend. Uh, we will be doing our our normal uh, you know, chit-chat that uh, George and I do, <clears throat> but I will also be peering individually, uh, talking specifically about the house and the books and the events uh, that occurred around that. And uh, I encourage everybody to come out for this. It's $5 at the door to get in, and all the money goes to the um, Autism Society of Rhode Island. Thank you so much for everything that you do, because uh, you're right in there. Then you have the ability and power to speak and write your books. And not everybody has a voice, and you have one, and you're using it you know, to the best uh, uh, for the worldwide uh you know, the greater good, actually. And, uh, well, that's what I'm shooting for. for. Yep. That's for right. The greater that's good. what we all that's have to do. Mm-hmm. That's our job that's here. Important. What else are we doing? That's right. What are we, you know, that's what are great. we in this for anyway? It's certainly not <laughs> not for the fame and the power and the position. You know, it's it's no. about loving your fellow human being. It's about wanting to bring, bring peace and solace to people that struggle and people who have been touched by spirit know that once it happens, it opens a door that you can never close again. And if I have any really great uh, satisfaction from telling our story the way that I have, it's that it was done authentically and honestly. And when people read it and they've had experiences like this themselves, for the first time in their lives, they feel that they can share it and talk about it. So it's it's very powerful in that respect, and I'm grateful to my readers. I'm grateful to our listeners tonight. I'm I'm grateful to everyone who has allowed me to have a voice because they listened. I want to thank Andrea Perron for her her wonderful talk tonight, and please get her book, The House of Darkness, The House of Light, and it's a trilogy. So one and two is available, and number three is going to be available shortly. And uh, you can find it on Amazon, and you'll get a discount. And give them the address again, Andrea. 
Uh, yeah, Amazon doesn't discount it, but my publisher does. It's AuthorHouse yeah. uh, and Author they're quick shippers too. Yeah, okay, but Amazon.com so and Barnes yeah. and Noble. You can get it from any Barnes and Noble. It's a, we have a lot of people are just saying that they wish you all the love and respect and uh, that you've really helped them and they really enjoyed your talk tonight. So oh, I'll go so with you, glad. Andrea. And I'll, I'll see you over there on Facebook, you know, and come on anytime you want. And if you have a special thing you want to do, uh, I'll be glad to have you. Oh, great. I'll come back on after we launch Volume 3. I'll come back yeah. on like a month afterwards and we'll talk about awesome. some more of what's in there. Great, great. Thank you and good night. God bless. Good night. Thank you, sweetheart. Good night. Good night. I want to say good night to everybody. Next week we will have another fantastic guest, uh, The Paranormal and Sacred. It's every Friday night, 6 p.m. And God bless you and God bless you all. Good night. Did you know?